The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gesineret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come over and help. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes the church's message, or our messaging, as they say in the PR world, just does not seem to line up with the needs of the world around it. Now that might be because the world is at enmity with God, and there's nothing that we could ever do or say that would be the right thing to do or say. Or it could be because we often find ourselves in the church in theological or intellectual ghettos, repeating the same phrases and ideas and even scriptures over and over so many times they become little more than cliches. The world is always changing, but we can come across like we're totally unaware of that reality. One of those cliches, if you will, uh, is that we sort of boil down all of Christianity to sin, forgiveness, and eternal life, not appreciating the way that Jesus' call on our own lives has bearing for us here and now, too. Eastern Orthodox Christians, that's Christians of, you know, say, Greece, Russia, the Ukraine, part of that whole hostility, those churches don't get along, uh, the Middle East, uh, they've criticized the West for centuries for being too focused on the individual's uh, problem of sin and guilt and need of forgiveness. Now, maybe that's because they rejected the Pope, who kind of benefited from millions of individuals being hyper-concerned about their personal guilt and shame. But the rise of sort of humanism in the West led to a more individualistic ethos, whereas the East has always had a more collectivist ethos. Western spirituality tends to be concerned 
with legal obedience, right? The legal, I mean, justification itself is legal language. Whereas the East is more prone to spiritual experience. And so those of us in the West who really inherited this sort of brand of Christianity, in part because Luther was obsessed with his own personal guilt and and need of forgiveness, we tend to focus then on those things. Sin, guilt, eternal life, how we are forgiven. And of course, all of those things are true and good in the crux, no pun intended, of, of what we believe as Christians. And yet following Jesus really sort of begins with those questions, and it sort of ends with those questions, but there's sort of a lot in between, a lot in the middle. And whenever we hear the the calling of the the disciples of Jesus, I think we can be reminded of the totality of following Jesus and the reality that following Jesus should have bearing in every area of our lives and should be a benefit in every area of our lives. There are, for example, significant social and psychological and emotional hardships that our world is experiencing. And if our only response is to only ever say that those uh, who are struggling with their sins is that their sins can be forgiven, I, I don't know if we're doing Jesus any favors. That is to say, if people are struggling with things other than just their own personal sin, then that message alone may not resonate. For when Jesus calls a person to follow him, it is a complete and total call. Let me try to put some some meat on those bones. I was thinking the other day about a friend I have. Uh, He's a very bright, faithful, uh, very active in his church, uh, all around pretty awesome guy. I know that he wants to get married and have a family but he's finding it difficult. Uh, As he himself would say, he's not especially handsome, and he has faced rejection his entire life. What does Christianity have to say to people in such a situation? I've been heartbroken to hear of the profound loneliness that has overtaken so many due to lockdowns and isolation. Now, hopefully that is by and large in the rearview mirror. But the study that I came up with over and over was a Harvard study that came out, I think, in about mid-2021. And here's some of what it found. About 36% of Americans reported feeling serious loneliness in the wake of the pandemic. Of those respondent, 61% were aged 18 to 25 and 43% reported increases in loneliness since the pandemic began. And then there are the attendant problems of loneliness, right? Drugs or alcohol or self-harm. They take their toll too. What about the general lack of mission or purpose in our culture? According to a, a LifeWay research survey, LifeWay is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, 57% of U.S. adults ponder at least monthly the question, how can I find more meaning and purpose in my life? 57%. In 2011, it was 51%. 
So on the one hand, it's only a 6% increase in the last decade, but the baseline is 51%. Over half of Americans ask themselves, hey, mission and purpose, you know, I need that in my life, right? Why am I here? Now, either there is less engagement with the church who should be offering an answer to that question, or the church has done a terrible job of answering that question, of communicating how Christianity gives us a mission and purpose, or maybe it's both of those things, for half and now over half of Americans to feel that way. What about just knowing your your place in the world? I don't really have a survey or statistics for this, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that knowing your place in the world is a cornerstone to understanding who you are, uh, you know, and who God is. Floating through life like it's some grand negotiation between you and the universe is a horrible way to live. It is far better to know that God exists, that you are not God, and that following his law actually brings you joy. In both the text of Isaiah falling down before God, at the holiness of God, at his calling, and actually uh, in the Gospel of John, we believe that John is saying that that's actually Jesus uh, that Isaiah is falling before. And then Peter falling at the feet of Christ in the boat. Both men knew their place as sinners. That is what they both confessed, as sinners in the presence of God. And what happens with Peter and Isaiah following their falling down before the holiness of God? Well, according to your average atheist or secular critic of Christianity, they must have gone on to have horribly oppressed and boring and small little lives of no consequence, right? I mean, after all, they just shrank before God. They just admitted they were sinners. They just admitted that they were small. They did not confess that to be an almighty, autonomous human in total control of his or her own destiny. So surely they had nothing left to live for, right? Well, quite the contrary. They were put on mission, as we say today. They were activated. Oh, they had struggles, for sure. And they both died for the faith. That's true. And yet no one can deny that they truly lived. Their lives were nothing if not meaningful and purposeful. Indeed, their lives were so full that even among and amidst hardship and joy, they were exhausted from full and fulfilled lives. But what of the other social concerns that I mentioned? My friend, who I I mentioned desires to be married, but as of yet has been unable to find a spouse. Well, I think that he would suffer from loneliness much more if he were not very active in his church, very active involved uh, in, in a music ministry and so forth. And is it any wonder that as participation among those, say, younger than me, younger than about 40, Uh, falls to really very low levels, far under 50%, that that is the group of people we are seeing most struggling with loneliness. 
And shame on those churches, by the way, who refused to open up and offer community to those who were alone. If social isolation is an endemic problem in our culture, well, the calling of the disciples is the answer. It is the formation of a community, a new family, a kind of gang is made. And while those disciples uh, saw no small share of struggles, they definitely were not alone. Those disciples also did not have the problem of wandering through life, wondering what their mission might be. They were given a mission. They would fish for people. Their lives would be in complete and perfect harmony with the fabric of the universe. For to call men and women to Christ was to reconcile the creature to its creator. Purposeless, meaningless, more like they didn't have enough hours in the day to get done all that they were called to do. When Jesus calls you to be his disciples, and when we are willing to leave everything to follow him, it is not just the forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life that is ours. It is not just questions of the soul or the spirit that are addressed. Jesus, in calling us to follow him, is also offering us an answer to loneliness, to existential dread, to a lack of purpose and meaning, to wondering what the mission of your life ought to be. If you believe that Jesus calling you to be his disciple is a burden, you have it all wrong. It is like God has picked you out from obscurity and he has said to you, here is a full and rich life defined by purpose, a community, and also those questions of supernatural uh, origin. All of that is now settled. So to all of the lonely, to all of the hurting, to all of those who wonder, why was I made? Why was I here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? Rest assured that Jesus is calling you to a life that answers all of those questions. And to those of us who have heard the call and have fallen down at the feet of Jesus and admitted that we are a sinner, how can we bring others into that life? Well, it is surely more than uh, telling people about Jesus, but it is at least that. And it is more than talking about sins and eternal life too, but it is certainly that. In the calling of the disciples, Jesus takes men and women and he gives them meaning and a mission and a place in this life. And as I survey the culture in which we live, those are certainly missing pieces that we can offer. Amen.
The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus came down with the twelve and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him. For power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his, at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's a question for you Is Jesus concerned about justice? I mean, do we have any evidence that Jesus? looked around Israel, sees actual injustice and oppression, and confronts it. And I don't just mean injustice in the religious sphere, but the economic and the political spheres as well. Did Jesus care about these things and speak about these things? If so, when? And what side is he on? And was he really only concerned with the souls and eternal lives of his hearers and disciples, or the more tangible things, too. Before I give you what I think is the answer, I want to first talk about the way the Lutheran tradition has sort of addressed this question, or part of the way it has addressed this question. Other traditions have their own takes on this as well. It's, it's usually called the Two Kingdoms Doctrine. If you're a lifelong Lutheran, perhaps you have heard a pastor use that phrase before, the two kingdoms doctrine. In truth, I don't even like the phrase two kingdoms because there is only one king. It is Christ our Lord. And so there's really only one kingdom. But within this kingdom, you might say there are two realms, sort of the church and the state, to put it loosely. And so there are two realms under this one kingdom, and so, what is this two realms doctrine then? Well, it basically teaches that in society, there are appropriate authorities for religious life and for civic life. The church doesn't go around executing murderers. And the church, or the state rather, doesn't say when the church can hold services. 
This break between the civil and the churchly realms was a much needed corrective in Luther's day because the church and state were so intertwined that it naturally led to a lot of corruption. The good that emanates from this doctrine then should be obvious. Different spheres of authority, both ordained by God and said to be good for different purposes. Respect one another and let the other flourish. There is integrity in the church because it has the freedom to preach the full gospel, unencumbered by government overlords. The state, meanwhile, is, in theory, an objective defender of the shared rights of all, regardless of creed, gender, color, etc. Now, that's slightly more modern language to, uh, to the problem, but I think it applies. Now, the bad that emanates from this doctrine, and this is a critique that would come from some others in the Protestant world, is that the church can excuse itself from the concerns of the world because, after all, they're political in nature and the problem uh, for that other realm to worry about. And the state, by the way, can come to see religious influence as bad. It is not. In other words, when the state is doing its things and it needs to have some kind of moral justification uh, for the things it is doing, I would like to think they would think about, say, Christian values or Christian principles when they do so. But our state is thoroughly secular, so that, that divide, you could argue, is too strong. But when it comes to controversial topics that have political overtones, which I've long said is happening more and more often now because the state is involved in more and more moral issues, well, the church has often been silent. Pastors, frankly, are terrified of how you will respond if we say anything, how parishioners will react, so they will stay silent, hiding behind the two realms doctrine. They've said again and again, hey, slavery, that's, not our, that's a political problem. We have nothing to say about that. Abortion isn't our problem. War isn't our problem. Marriage isn't our problem. Distribution of wealth isn't our problem. And on and on. Those are the state's problems to solve. Now, I don't think all of those issues are equal in weight, I'm not even saying all of those issues should be commented on by the church, certainly not, you know, droned on and on about, as sometimes can happen. But is Jesus concerned about justice? That's the question. Because if he is, in spite of our fancy doctrines and in spite of our fear, we should be too. And I'll be honest. I've changed my mind on this. I've changed my tune on this as I've gotten older. See, when I was younger, especially in seminary, uh, I was browbeaten by leftists who turned the gospel into a social movement. And I retreated safely, as one does, into this realm of the church. Hey, you know what? They can forget the noise. I'm going to go to where I'm comfortable. I'm just going to talk about, you know... The Bible, forgiveness of sins, salvation, stuff like that. But I think that rather than leaving the world of social justice to the Marxists, 
we should remind the world that Christians actually have something to say, something of vital importance, in fact. And in our gospel today, a lot is said. Generally, Jesus' sermon, and in Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plain, uh, because he goes to a level place. It's the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5, 5 to 7. Uh, but this sermon is often seen rightly, of course, as the definitive description of the life of a disciple and the rewards of such a life, right? Because we focus on the blessings. We think of Matthew 5 as the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry, those who weep. And we know that these are just not any who are poor or hungry or weeping, These words describe the heart of the man or woman who knows his place before God, accepts it, and lives by God's grace. The disciple is a humble servant of God who so desires for God's kingdom to rule in this world that we weep at the evil and injustice and rebellion we see in opposition to it. It is not, for example, financial destitution alone that is a virtue. If that were the case, we should just empty our bank account and live on the street and say, aha, God loves me the best now because it says, blessed are the poor. But poverty of spirit, as the Gospel of Matthew makes more clear, thinking less of yourself so that you can think more of God. And this is also Jesus saying, that all people have value, right? In a, in, a, in a world where, you know, the rich and powerful are the people who are more valuable, here is Jesus coming along and saying that's not the case, that's a profound teaching. It's a radical elevation, in fact, of those who were used and ignored and taken for granted by the corrupt and powerful. Jesus has just reversed the social order placing the humble on top. That is true. But we usually, again, focus on the blessings, right? Because we want to think of ourselves in the category of those who are blessed. Uh, Even uh, Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, he has a long chapter on these blessings. But that's just the first half of the sermon because then Jesus turns his attention to the purveyors of injustice. Woe to the rich, to the full, to those who are laughing, to those who are well-spoken of. But who are these people exactly? Is this a a group of upper-middle-class folks who enjoy too much luxury? Or are these the elite of Jesus' day? The ruling class, those who make their money by exploitation, and those who enjoy power because the oppressed have no say. Yes, there is good reason, in fact, to believe that Jesus has in mind here rich rulers. And I'm I'm using that term because the rich young ruler, I actually just listened to a whole explanation of that story of the rich young ruler that was quite illuminating But these rich rulers, they've inherited their positions, they betray the public trust, and they live high lives because people suffer, 
because people suffer. They mistakenly rest secure in knowing that they are God's chosen people, right? By lineage, that's, that's one thing Jesus has to confront. That's why he has to say, I could raise up children of Abraham from stones. Because people were constantly justifying their injustice by saying, we're children of Abraham. We're, chosen, we're the chosen people. Jesus is confronting that a lot. What those who have the power are doing is a sinful abuse of those without power. And Jesus says they will pay a price. They will face God's judgment for how they treat people now. So is Jesus concerned about injustice? Yes, you had better believe it. So should we be as well? Well, yes. But whose justice? By what standard? Who decides which issues are the right issues and what we should think about them? I will admit, it's not as easy to, to, to understand as I once thought. As an example, several years ago, you might re recall the, the protest at, uh, the, in the park in New York City, uh, the 1%. You remember that? Uh, kind of 2008 or so, 2007, 2009. And I thought at the time that those protesters were in every way totally crazy and misguided. And some really terrible things took place at that event, of course. But I thought, well, the super, super rich will always spread their wealth around. And, you know, as Ronald Reagan said, a rising tide raises all boats. But I'm not so sure anymore. There, there seems to be now a symbiotic relationship between corporations and a government that has a monopoly on picking winners and losers. And certain people get cert, uh, super rich, and they also seem to get super powerful. And when they use that money for nefarious purposes, this seems to be the kind of group of the elite ruling class that Jesus warned against. And so maybe those who were protesting that 1% had a point. For years we were told that the prominent justice issue of our day was a, a government that didn't help people who were in poverty to get out of it. Okay? The workers were told to unite, to have a voice against the powerful. But when they do, the government is actually fighting them. Yes, I'm talking about the convoys uh, starting all over the world, speaking truth to power. I thought that's what we were supposed to do. I pray they succeed. Or what about the Department of Homeland Security saying that those who question narratives or, the, or, or what they call conspiracy theories are domestic terrorists. Maybe you heard this language this week. Quote, these threat actors seek to exacerbate societal friction, to sow discord and undermine public trust in government institutions, to encourage unrest, which could potentially inspire acts of violence. Well, the purpose of protecting free speech is precisely to question rich and powerful rulers who do not always have our best interest at heart. 
Blind obedience to our rulers can easily lead to real human suffering. And this is precisely the kind of moral issue that the church would not speak about because it's seen as too political. But these are precisely the kinds of people to whom Jesus, I believe, is hurling these woes. If they can tell us what to think and what to say, it is only a matter of time before our religious commitments are so neutered and silenced that the good of Christianity will be unavailable to the world around us. So I was wrong when I thought that Jesus really didn't care about justice. It's just that the other side, if you will, had taken over that realm to such a degree that I didn't want to play in their sandbox. So I played in mine. But Jesus does care about justice. The question is, and it's a matter of ongoing discernment, whose justice? By what standard? In Jesus' sermon, it's clear that those who defraud, those who live well at the expense of others, those who enjoy the praise of men today are likely opposing God and will be judged. To the extent that any of us can be described in such a way, we are called to repent, lest we face the same judgment. And if and when we suffer at the hands of such evil men, we will be blessed. That is God's promise that he will never break. So should we be concerned about justice? Yes, because it will create a perfect world. That's the problem of the ideologues, Marxists, the utopians. No, but because we can work towards a better world. And to those who work for justice and find their efforts coming up short, do not despair, for you will be blessed, both in the satisfaction of knowing that you are living up to your calling and in the blessings of the life to come. Amen.